You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. Amen. All right, so um, what I want us to do here, and what I think is, is utterly appropriate, is for us to, again, just sort of place ourselves within the context of Scripture. All right, so what is it? What is taking place as Matthew is writing, right? So Matthew, in the, in the first chapter, gives us the genealogy of Christ, right? So we get those, that, that portion of text that often is cumbersome for us to read, right? Because it's like, this name that I can't pronounce, birth. This name that I can't pronounce, which birth, I don't even know what that is. In this place that I have no idea where it's at, right? And yet there's a significant thing that's taking place in that Jesus is being rooted Jesus is being utterly connected to all that God has promised in the Old Testament, all the books that were written before Jesus came. Now, there's something special about Matthew chapter 2, which is that sort of the first half that we read this morning. And and this account, this this story that we see here is is only found in in Matthew, right? So there's four Gospels, four sort of accounts of Jesus' life. This is the only one in which this particular portion um, shows up. Now, that, that should seem odd to us, I think, because we just exited sort of the, the, the Christmas season in which we sort of have this, this, uh, this sort of imaginative um, understanding of what it was that took place, where we imagine sort of there's, there's the nativity scene, here's this little, you know, acute little sort of barn where Jesus and Joseph and Mary are all there, and there's a couple shepherds and maybe some sheep, and then there's three wise men, because there has to be three, um, even though what we'll notice here is that they never make mention of the number, right? But um, that's just a pet peeve. Anyway, um, also they weren't present at his birth, but that's a whole other thing. Um, we'll see that here in just a second too. But right, so we have, we have kind of this superficial, this surface understanding of this story. And it's all very cute. And it's all very sort of, um, I, don't, I don't even know how to, how to sort of put it into, into good words. It's sort of a, almost a cultural, um, yeah, I've got nothing. But anyway, it's, um, it's essentially very, very surface level. Let's just put it that way. We have sort of this image that's been commercialized. Um, but what's taking place here, especially in terms of the visit of these wise men, these magi, is, is completely and entirely otherworldly. So there's a few questions that I, that I want us to ask. We've read, we've read the text, and we're going to, like we always do, we're going to walk through it sort of step by step. But I, I already have two questions right? Who, who are these men, right? Who are these men, and why, and why would they make a journey from their homeland, which it doesn't give us their exact location, but why would they make this journey to this place for, of all things, a baby who has been born, right, in, in the most humbling or, or really the most um, sort of unseemingly glorious situations, why would they do those things? And so I think uh, Matthew's going to just walk us through that and then the implications of which we will arrive to at the end. So first question, who were these men? Matthew 2 verse 1 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, their names, their citizenship, right, all of that is kept from us. But here's the thing, we can, we can, I think, faithfully deduce from some clues that have been given to us here, um, not necessarily their number, not necessarily their names, but we can deduce sort of where, where they came from. 
right? The, the Bible uses the word magi. This translation uses the word wise men. Now, magi or magos in the Greek was typically a, a word that was ascribed to men in, uh, that, that were essentially um, Persians or Chaldeans, astrologers, philosophers, right? So these are wise men that are probably from somewhere in the region of, of Persia or Babylon, which, which if you don't know where that is today, um, that's Iran, right? So, so, so um, Israel, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a pretty significant journey. Now, based on the fact that they were magi, we can, we can know, again, just based on some historical context, what probably characterized these men. Right? So they're, they're known as wise men. They're known as probably astrologers, philosophers. Right? They're knowledgeable. Um, they're powerful. They're influential. They are men of stature and wealth. Right? They are well esteemed in their culture. Right? So in, in Persia and in Babylon, these men would be considered cultural elite. Right? Well off, well to do. So the question then becomes, if you have these men who were well-esteemed, well-knowledgeable, well-known in their culture, had really probably everything that they needed where they were, right, what on earth would possess them then to pack up sort of all that they have and are and make a journey, which if we look at the maps today and we just take sort of a, again, if we take an approximate number from sort of the middle of, of Persia to Israel, why would they go and take a 1,500-mile journey? Right? So if, if this is who these men are, what, it, what in God's green earth would possess them to make that kind of journey? Now, now, here's the thing. We have to place ourselves in that story. Right? Ancient Middle Eastern travel was not what it is now. So there's no Qatar Air, right? There's, there's no Fly Emirates, unless the whole Aladdin thing ring, rings true to you, right? There's, there isn't. And so there's a 1,500-mile journey that they are taking by foot and by camel. Right? So there's, there's something significant that is taking place here in that you have men of stature, men of esteem, who are perfectly comfortable in their culture, being willing to uproot all that they have and are to take an arduous 1,500-mile journey across desert and plain. To come see this, this king. Now, there's, I mean, just think through what is actually taking place here. The great cost of time and money that these men would spend to make this 1,500 mile journey. The great danger through which they would walk. The, the risk of hunger, the risk of sickness, the risk of, I, I wanted to use this word, banditry, right? That like, like a journey, you know, at that point is not the safest thing in the world to do, and yet they're willing to risk all of those things in order to be found in the presence of this, of this person, this significant person that they know has been born but are not 100% sure of what the context of that birth is. They don't know his name is Jesus. They don't know that he is the king. They, they, they know he's a king. They, they, they know that there's sort of this star that, is, that has guided them to, to, where they've, to where they've ended up. But man, I don't know about you, but just on a hunch or just on sort of something like that, I probably wouldn't take those kinds of pains in search of, of what would, you know, by most accounts, be something foolish. And so what is it that's taking place here? Why would they make such a journey? Verse 2 says this, saying, where is he? 
who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So, it's quite clear that these men have undertaken all of these things to come and worship a king who was not their king. They're Persians. They're Babylonians. Not only are they culturally elite, but they are, um, in terms of world geopolitics, they are far more than this little nation of Israel. These Jews who time and time again have been conquered by Assyria and Babylon and all these other, all these other nations that have sort of really just abused this nation for year after year after year. And yet these Persians come and they say, we've come to worship your, your king, the king of the Jews. And they ask about who the child is who has this legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth. And so this is what we know so far. These magi, these wise men, of their number and origin, which we are not 100% sure of, came to worship a new king, a king whose birth was worthy of their worship. And so that gives me now two new questions that I would want to ask if I'm reading this. And one of them we'll answer in the next um, portion, but then the other we'll leave to the end. Question number one, who is this king? And question number two, what does he have to do with wise men from Persia? So who is this king? So here's what happens, right? Um, we see in verse three, it says this, when Herod the king, so, right, so the, the current king over Israel, king, heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And that's kind of ironic, right? In that these men of Persia don't know. But this king, this king Herod knows immediately. Where the, it's the Christ. They're talking about the Christ. Where was he to be born again? Remind me, priests and scribes, where was he to be born? And then they say this. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here's what happens, right? The Magi go and ask the priests and the scribes, where is this king? However, in their reply, the Magi not only glean his location, but they glean his identity, right? That this king was to be the promised of the line of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, the promised king of Israel. So, so here's the thing, right? We did a lot of work we did a lot of work over the Advent season sort of looking at the Old Testament and seeing how the promises that had been delivered to God's people through the prophets, right, were made whole or were found in their fullness in Christ. So what, what we would think at this point would be that this people who time after time after time had longed for this coming king, for this promise to be fulfilled, for this prophecy to be made true, for God's decrees to come to pass, you would think that they would have reacted like fairly excited, right? Like just a little bit at least. But it says in verse 3 that not only was Herod troubled, but that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. So here, again, this is just insane, all right? Think for a second. 
about what's taking place here. You have a people who over centuries of time have been shown God's grace and favor, who over centuries of time have been shown that God is true to his promises, who over centuries of time have been walked with by God himself, who now at the climax of their faith, at the climax, at the turning point, the hinge of their history, are troubled. Now, let me, I'm just going to read the portion of Scripture that they're quoting from, so that we can, again, begin to sort of understand why this is so strange. When we go, they're quoting from a, a book called Micah. It's in the Old Testament. It's just a few pages over. Um, but it's a prophet. And this is, this is how that portion of Scripture reads in its fullness, right? So these scribes and priests, they're, they're sort of quoting piecemeal from it. This is what it says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the cheek of Israel. Uh, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So here's the thing. You would think, again, you would think that a people who have been besieged for the majority of their history, whether it's 400 years in slavery in Egypt or 70 years under the, king, uh, the kings in Babylon, like, you would think that this promise of a coming king, a king who would govern his people and not just govern them, but govern them in peace, who would establish them forever, would be something that would lead to excitement, not trouble. So, what is it that's taking place among this people, this nation, who really for all of their history had been communicated with verbally by God through the prophets, that this was going to take place? And here's, and here's really what's, what's going on with them. Ultimately, they're afraid of upheaval, right? The history of Israel is, is wrought with upheaval, and rather than be excited about the promises that the upheaval would bring to pass, they're frightened of it, right? So they know, they know, look, hey, we've been, we've been under Roman, Roman rule for a little while. It's, you know, it's not awesome, but it's also not horrible. We've had it worse previously, right? We're kind of comfortable with the way this whole thing has worked out, and now this king is going to come, and he's just going to kind of mess everything up. He's going to throw everything off kilter, and so we know, we already know why Herod's worried, right? Because he's the king. So, so he's just kind of like, yeah, well, that, I mean, that's no good, that's no good for me, you know, if, if there's a, a new guy in town. But in terms of the rest of the people, like, man, the fact, that, the fact that they would be so concerned with how the arrival of the king would change, that they would miss the arrival of the king is unbelievable. Unbelievable to me. So here's the thing, now that, now that we know sort of what's, what's taking place in terms, of, in terms of the history leading up to this, I want to bring us to, to the main point of, of really what, what, what's taking place here, at least the main point in terms of what, 
um, what I think is important for us this morning. Because there's, there's uh, many different things that we could sort of take, take away from this. But here's the main point. Jesus, right, although he's born the king of Israel, although he is inextricably linked to the line of this nation, right? That's what, that's what chapter 1 is all about, doing linking Jesus to the throne of David, the throne that God promised he would establish forever. But even though he is this king, the king of Israel, inextricably linked to the promises, the prophecies of Israel, his coming changes the entire fabric of this kingdom in such a way that most of those who are a part of it by lineage don't even recognize it. That Jesus' coming so changes this nation, the people of God, that the people who are in it by lineage don't even recognize it. They're not even willing to entertain the fact. They're, in fact, troubled by His appearing. And here's what takes place next. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Sneaky, sneaky guy, that Herod. <laughs> After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, here's why this is otherworldly, right? I mentioned that at the beginning, that what is taking place here is from another planet, that what is taking place here really is sort of the, the putting the top on the bottom and the bottom on the top. It's turning everything upside down. Remember, these men were by their cultural standards well-off, well-esteemed, lacking nothing, and yet they bow before a baby. And not just a baby, but a supposed king that's been turned away from even by the least and the last of his own people. A king whose court is currently composed of his parents and some smelly shepherds. But here's the second narrative, or here's the, the second thing that we have to understand. In terms of their culture, they were estimable. But in terms of the culture that they found themselves in, right? So the moment they walked into Israel, they were worthy of Israel's suspicion. They were outsiders. They were foreigners. They were not included in the promises of God to the people of Israel. They didn't look like them. They didn't smell like them. They didn't act like them. They didn't believe like them. They didn't have history like them. They hadn't walked with God like them. And yet, even though by the culture of the day in Israel, they were pagan idolaters, excluded from this people, from this kingdom to whom these promises were delivered, treated with suspicion and inward disdain while being shown outward honor. The truth is, is that they're the ones who give him appropriate worship. And that at this moment, at this moment, the kingdom of God breaks wide open 
Because here's the thing, a lot of us, we tend to read, we tend to read Acts and think that, oh, like the, the vision came to Peter, he saw that, okay, the gospel is for everyone, it's not just for the Jews, it's for the, the Gentiles too. But what's taking place here, and the reason that, it is, that this is in this account, is because it's Gentiles that are worshiping Jesus first. The outsider. Those who, by all accounts of the people of that day, should be excluded from the promise, are invited in to worship the king of all kings, not just the king of Israel. That this king that that came was not just a threat to Herod, but a threat to every ruler on planet earth, a threat to everyone, anyone who would lay claim to any kind of authority over any kind of person. That this is the king, and that this is is a king for all people. That although up to this point, God had used the nation of Israel time and time again to display His glory, time and time again to show His patience, to show His long-suffering, time and time again to deliver to them promises, the doors to the kingdom have been blown wide open. No longer are you sojourners. No longer are we foreigners. But those who are both Jew and those who are Gentile are invited into His presence to worship Him for the King that He is, worthy of tribute from all tongues, all tribes, and all peoples in all nations. That's what's taking place here. This moment is utterly more significant than three wise men who brought three sort of trinkets to to make our Christmas story more cute. This is an... This is an astounding declaration of the kingship, the lordship of Christ, His godness, His lordship over all people. And here's the thing. He promised He would do this. I want to read quickly from from Psalm 87. You're welcome to to turn there with me if you want. You don't have to. It's, It's very short. But it says this, On the holy mount stands the city that He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Remember, this is written to the people of Israel. And look at what God's going to say next. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike all say that all my springs are in you. Look, Jesus promised from the beginning that His kingdom would be exclusive in terms of who, who is king over it, right? There's, there's no debate for that. There is no, maybe it's Herod, maybe it's this guy. It's Jesus. He's the king. That's the truth. End of story. But the invitation to, to partake of his glorious kingdom is inclusive in that all peoples have been invited to come before his throne and worship him. And brothers and sisters, that is, that is the glorious truth that is taking place here. And look, um, it's, not, it's not only glorious because of sort of all the intricacies culturally of what's happening, but it's also glorious in that many of us here, as far as I know, are not Jewish in our heritage. 
And so this means that in this moment, what is taking place, this is the moment that our invitation to join in this family, the family of God, to be counted among his sons and daughters as adopted is taking place right here. So Christ is truly a king for all peoples. He's a king for all. He's a king for the esteemed Persian, the, the pagan, the outright, outright non-believer. And he's a king for the religious elite. He's a king for the poor shepherd in the field. And he's a king for everything else in between. He's a king for the Jew and he is a king for the Persian. In spite of all of the differences that they had culturally, even down to the color of their skin. You ever seen an Iranian? You ever seen an Israelite? They don't look alike, do they? And yet Jesus, in this moment, in what takes place here, in this, in this gospel, in this accounting of his life, shows that... <laughs> None of that matters in the least, that if you would come and pay tribute to him, pay homage to him in his kingship and his lordship, you will be counted among his family, and you will not only be drawn to him, but we will be drawn to one another. Jesus invites, welcomes the praise of all peoples to illustrate that his kingdom right here in this moment, in this portion of scripture, is now ready for all. All-world expansion. So, brothers and sisters, what, what is the application or the implication for us? It means, brothers and sisters, that right now in this time, in this place, in a culture that sees so much division, especially along right now, currently, racial lines, it means that we as the church, we as the body of Christ, should seek with all that we have to expel any of those things that would cause disunity or division among us because, again, God invites the praises of all peoples, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation, of every race, of every color, of every creed. And so here's the thing. We have to have these conversations because not only is it glorifying to God, but it speaks to the world of the peace in which Christ reigns. That he is going to establish a people that have been disparate for generations. That for generations have warred against one another. Look, if you, if you haven't been aware of it, Israel and Iran are still kind of at odds. And yet God is still drawing to himself Israelites and he's still drawing to himself Iranians. And his people will be comprised of them and not in a begrudging way, but in such a way that bespeaks his peace and his glory and the magnificence of his saving reign and rule. And so look, we can walk into these tough issues. We can walk into these difficult conversations with a posture of humility, with a posture of understanding that God is not for any one particular race or color or creed, but that he is for all peoples. And that he illustrated that in every way, in every way, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his current reign and rule over his people. Let's pray.